Motives are crucial. That's what I realized after multiple researches for the podcast, for last meals, for just any segment ever when researching true crime. I will never ever describe a single true crime case as boring, right? Like, I will be deep in and be like, okay, you know, it might not be most detailed, but I'm still in it. Like, it might not have the why, the where, it might be unresolved. I'm still in there. With this case, after like an hour deep into research, I just had to like stop myself and be like, but why, mate? Why are we here? Why are you doing any of this? What is going on? You are triggering me and I don't understand why. So I hope today you help me understand why. Hi eaters, we are not eating today as you can see. We're drinking delicious H2O just with, with a bit of ice because that is what the person I'm talking about today chose as their last meal. Hey, at least my vocal cords are gonna be refreshed while telling you a story. All while we drink this delicious natural beverage that he has chosen as his special meal. Mate, might have as well chosen something. I used to start these last meal videos by asking you what can be the use about a person just based on their last meal. And yeah, just based on that and the fact that I told you I have no idea why this man committed any murders and he's apparently a serial killer. We were in for a roller coaster of emotions that might not lead anywhere and then you might just leave the video and be like, wow, he was a serial killer great for him. Ever heard about this one? His name is David Edwin Mason. Heard about him? Might have seen a picture of him. I vaguely remember seeing a picture of him once, but then when I dived in I knew nothing. And a bit of a trigger warning, this guy used to kill the elderly. So that's a trigger warning for me. So again, if it's not something that you want to listen to, I'll put like a lighter video in the description box for you to check out and I'll see you next week. So now that I raged about a man, let's talk about a man. David was born on December the 2nd, 1956 in a strict Christian fundamentalist household. So that already tells you we are in for some fuckery. Throughout the years he would suffer physical, verbal, psychological abuse from his parents. So it isn't in particular said in any of the sources that he had what's known as McDonald Triad, but I kind of spotted at least two things and the third one might have just been covered up because his parents were strict. So McDonald Triad consists of bedwetting, setting fires and animal cruelty. And Mason had been setting fires from the very early age. Not just that, but this is disturbing. He tried to actually commit suicide himself when he was only five years old after swallowing some pills and then setting fire to his clothes. So technically trying to set himself and his room on fire. And people will say that this is one out of 25 reported suicide attempts that David has had in 20 years. And I don't know why or how, but they just didn't find this alarming between 56 and 76, which is, to me, smells like the family might have been trying to like cover everything up just because of what I'm going to say next. In terms of the second part of the McDonald's trial that David might have had, 
it is reported that he defecated on himself, so like not urinated. And it wasn't for no reason. Like his parents were strict to the point that they would shut him into this room that had the windows barricaded. So he had the windows shut in and they would call it the dungeon. This disciplining wasn't for no reason. He would set fires to different places in the house. He attacked neighboring kids. And at the age of eight, they caught him standing by his younger brother's crib with a knife in his hand, and they obviously freaked out. However, obviously, you could see that this kind of disciplining will turn out to be damaging to his mind because he's just shut in this place by himself with, like, no food, no ways to go to the toilet. He's just stuck in complete pitch darkness. So there was this incident when he was 11 and he defecated on himself that his mother put nappies onto his head and made him wear them around the neighborhood, around the house, just to humiliate him. And this is not the first time I have heard something similar. Nothing exactly the same, but there is a lot of serial killers, like some of them that I have covered for the channel, some of them that I'm just aware of. The humiliation when it comes to that part of the McDonald triad, so like urination yourself, defecation yourself, the humiliation is heavily present. There was a case, I'm not sure if it's Gary Heidnick, but I have definitely covered it, where um, the mother would literally like hang the laundry of her son's urination, like to embarrass him in front of the neighborhood, which just isn't going to lead to any solutions. It's just that the child is then going to associate that with humiliation, but it's not going to help him actually stop wetting the bed, for example. There was another occasion that a family member reported his dad would strap him to a workbench and would gag his mouth and then would beat him until he would become unconscious. So it comes as no surprise that David developed some PTSD from very early age. So it will come as no surprise he started his life of crime early. At the age of 21 was his first known robbery. This is when he robbed his neighborhood store and then tried stabbing this clerk with an ice pick and then threatened her that he is going to kill her and her family if she was to report him to the police. Luckily, this woman was actually found and she did press charges. She recognized the guy because it is a small neighborhood and he has been convicted for this and has spent 36 months in prison. So after getting out of prison, he didn't really know what to do with himself, like he was quite lost, but was also charming, like nice to talk to in terms of neighbors, like they didn't see any red flags. So like these elderly neighbors would kind of employ him for odd jobs here and there, you know, help out with the garden, help fix something if it got broken around the house, and he would abuse their trust. One such lady was 73-year-old Joan Pickard. She would let David into the house, you know, he would help her out with, like, gardening, with cleaning. So she would let him in, obviously, take a glass of water, take anything. What if that's why he chose a refreshment as his last meal? As one last F you, like, whoa, these people let me in to take a refreshment. I took advantage of them. I think that's more vile and that's more like what you think with your fucked up mind. I genuinely think he just had no imagination. He was playing cool, cool. 
And of course, after helping her out with gardening, with cleaning, like she would let him in to take a glass of water, take a refreshment, sit down, and then she would talk, chat with him randomly. She, in particular, would chat about topics like religion, but she did also mention that she had a hefty, nice coin collection. And as she would be chatting with him, she felt completely comfortable to the point that she even told him about her panic alarms because she was concerned, you know, she's the elderly, she was concerned with burglars. And has completely trusted Mason, so it was more of a talk of, you know, if you ever come and something was, God forbid, to happen, like, these are the panic alarms in my house. But obviously, David is going to use this to his advantage. So on March 6, 1980, David woke up and he kind of like, you know, checked his bank balance. Well, he wasn't really online back there, so he probably just checked his wallet, realized none of these elderly people really gave him jobs recently. He is really low on funds. And he remembers in the back of his mind, remember Joan? Remember her? She mentioned her coin collection. I'm just gonna go and rob her. But of course, David knew that he can't leave witnesses behind this time. Because with the first robbery, that landed him in jail. So he takes a bus, goes to Joan's house, just knocks on the door, and then she obviously lets him in because she recognizes him. And this is when he attacks her again with an ice pick. Odd choice of weapon, if you ask me, because it's an ice pick, right? It will melt. But nonetheless sharp and deadly. So this at first started as a normal robbery. We start, he told her he's going to rob her, but she didn't believe him. She was like, what are you on about? Like, you come here every now and then, like, what do you mean you're going to rob me? So he instructs her not to scream or run, but to convince her that he is actually going to rob her, he tells her he's a drug addict. So while he goes upstairs and tries to find this coin collection, she obviously tries to reach for a panic button. However, he catches her and he takes her from behind and chokes her until she fell unconscious. But this lady was not going down without a fight. She actually gets conscious while he's still like rummaging through the place, getting any money, getting any coins. And she's like, that's fine, just take everything, proceed please proceed. So he gets relaxed and goes back at it, goes back and goes back to like take her coins and everything and she tries to wreck it. She tries to get out of there. At this point he reaches out for her, he catches her again and now ties her wrists with electrical cord. And I really hope like here, okay cool, he's going to gather that coin collection and get lost and just get out of there, but of course, if he was to do that, she would be able to identify him. So, after taking all of her coins, he went back to Picard and he tied ligature around her neck and strangled her. Picard's daughter will discover her body two days from then, and he kind of hid her behind a pantry, so like behind a closed door, trying to hide her from you if anybody was to like peek through the windows. But, and I think this might have been Joan when she tried to run, the clock radio that she had in the kitchen stopped at 12.29pm. That might have been a coincidence, but it might have been Joan literally trying to signal to people when this has happened. And later it will come to light that actually 
David, who wasn't the smartest person in the world, went immediately to the pawnbroker and sold all of her coins for $85. So there will be a receipt of this at 4.40 p.m. that day. But this is not going to be how they catch him, because David Edwin Mason is going to rob and kill a few more people. Actually, only 14 days after John's murder, he realized he's again low on cash, because his gains were only $85. It's, it's so freaking painful just to even think about that. Just If he just had the mentality to even just go to Joan's house and while chatting with her, while helping her with works around the house, just confirm the value of those coins. Realize that there is no even reason to rob the woman. If that is your one and only motive, just don't rob the elderly then. So this evening, 14 days after killing Joan, he actually tried to rob Donald Gion. So he snuck into the garage while Donald was working outside and just had the garage open. But Donald realized that there was like a shadow behind him, so he shouted to his wife to call the police. And Gin was trying to swing the garbage lid at him and trying to distract him, and his wife actually, instead of going to call the police, kind of runs towards him, which was good decision in this instance because David just decided to flee. During this robbery, however, he was wearing one of those nylon tights around his head, so they couldn't give a good description to the police, they couldn't really describe his features, his face. So, again, this will only come to light after he confesses years after in prison. His next murder might have had more of a motive than just monetary. Because 83-year-old Arthur Jennings was said later through the statements by David Edwin Mason to have sexually abused him ever since he was like a teenager and then onwards. And this was believable by the police for multiple reasons, because David actually gave them the details of where this guy abused him. And something that is also common, of course, the abuser didn't share his real name. So he was only known to David as Nico. So on August 18, 1980, David went into Arthur Jennings' house and he kind of just knocked you know, Jennings open to like check out who it was, but because he was 83, David just pushed him inside and because Jennings was walking with a cane, he fell onto the floor and then David just jumped on top of him, started beating him, soon opted in to just strangle Arthur until he stopped breathing. And here he starts being sloppy and he's just not thinking straight at all. He steals $16, which is the only thing that he could find, but he also steals one of those military rings that Jennings had from World War One. So, of course, you and I are thinking, as soon as he goes to the pawnbroker now, they're going to, like, ring the police or something, because he's clearly not in the military, he's clearly stolen something. Like, why would he suddenly have this military ring? But then again, he could probably explain it. And here they picked up on Jennings' death after the Meals on Wheels driver reported it to the police the next day. Because just like in the first case, somebody was to follow up only the day after or a couple of days after. But here David didn't even bother to hide the body. It was just spread out where he strangled him, like in the corridor. As soon as this Mills and Wheels driver tried to knock, he saw it through the window and then he alerted the police. And although the cause of death here was also asphyxiation, 
Here they noticed that there was some rage. The police knew that this one was personal because Jennings had fractured spine, fractured bones, all different parts of the body, and there were visible bruises on his head, face, neck, just upper body. But yet again, he was lucky because nobody witnessed him in the neighborhood, nobody witnessed the crime. He got the timing correct here as well because Jennings was only killed about an hour after that Meals on Wheels driver who would go and deliver him meals every single day has arrived to this house. So somehow, again, he had the luck on his side. And what I find weird, maybe the only interesting thing about David Mason, is how he would sporadically place these kills and robberies. His next kill happens three months after this, in November 1980. And I was just thinking, what are you doing? Because you can't be living off 16 pounds, so like, are you still helping the neighbors, scouting for your next victims? Because that is never explained. Nobody kind of looked into it and asked him, okay, so you know your cooldown period for three months? What were you doing, mate? Like, were you just scouting for people? Because that's kind of important in determining flight risk. And we just don't know. Also, thinking about motives, I'm kind of thinking, how is he spreading them evenly? And whether Jennings was the only actual victim where it was properly personal and everybody else was just the consequence of him being broke and in need of money. On November the 16th, 1980, he's going to enter the house of Antoinette Brown, who was also one of the neighbors in that block that knew him, and she just let him in. And although this is going to look similar in terms of how the robbery went down, like he first empowered the victim, he killed her and then tried to rob like her purse and any rings, any valuables, any jewelry that she had in the house. He's escalating in violence here. He came prepared because he came with a murder weapon, which was a wrench in this case, and Antoinette was severely, severely bruised. She was beaten with this wrench and then strangled. Another thing with Antoinette, it just looked like it was more sexual in nature as well, because like her clothes were just pulled up and it seemed like her vaginal tissue has been bruised as well. However, here, like in other instances we dated Edwin Mason, the police is a few steps behind because it took about a couple of days for people to notice, hey, Antoinette hasn't been picking up the newspapers off her front porch. So one of her neighbors called her sister, who had a key to the apartment and then Brown's sister actually went and discovered her body. And once the police started investigating, they found a neighbor who said, like, she thinks she witnessed a really young man, like, in his 20s, leaving this person's flat around 4 p.m. So the police puts a set of pictures in front of her, and she chooses two people. One of them was David Edwin Mason, and the other one was just, like, another person. So, again, they have some leads now to go off on. However, it is a strong witness testimony, nonetheless, but it's just that they still need certain evidence, they need his confession, and they need to track him down. And it's important to say here, David actually robbed a couple of places in between his kills. And he would always get away with it, or it just didn't look like the same M.O. because certain 
robberies would end with kills and would seem to be personal and he would be going inside the houses whereas these were like different jewelry stores for example and he would either get away well because they couldn't recognize him it wasn't in his neighborhood they had never seen the guy or he would have like different masks like different balaclavas and nylon over his face or because he would threaten different jewelry stores and say the same thing that he did in the first robbery that he has done when he was 21 that if they report him to the police he is going to track them down and kill them I just reviewed some of the footage just to see if I sound as dead as I feel inside basically I'm not drinking coffee this month I don't know if you noticed it I noticed it insanely like what is day 7th of March that I'm recording this? it's I mean, 7 days I've been dying I can fall asleep at any point of the day. I mean, I sleep really well, but during the day I just do not function. It's like 1pm. I should be functioning, but I am not. Thanks for listening to this deeply traumatic story. On December the 6th, 1980, Mason is again going to rob an elderly person but this time there are going to be some witnesses downstairs so nobody is going to see him but people have heard a commotion so Dorothy Lang who was 72 at the time lived in Fruitville Avenue on the second floor in this apartment store building in Oakland and the Santos is her downstairs neighbors have heard some commotion upstairs it sounded like a loud breathing and like things were being dropped to the floor so they go knock on her door but there's no answer so then they go downstairs back to their flat and kind of like reach out to her from the same point where they think she is standing or lying down upstairs and they ask her Dorothy are you okay and they hear a voice that they think was Dorothy's say yes and then they hear footsteps going into the room upstairs and just the door being slammed and after that they don't hear any commotion so they think okay she has went to bed let's chat with her in the morning maybe she was just grumpy maybe she just didn't want to speak with anybody that evening but the next morning where they went upstairs to deliver her the papers they see the door has been left ajar so here he just doesn't care like again I don't know if he just thinks he's going to get caught or he's just getting careless but literally everything on this scene screamed like it was the same guy so they find Dorothy again she is lying down and her shirt is pulled up exposing her and then again her pants are like pulled up exposing her genitals as well and there is the murder weapon next to her there is that bloody wrench here we have similar kind of injuries bruises to the face different parts of the body again that general tissue is damaged but it seems like it's damaged from the bruises and not like sexual assault she died by asphyxiation and why I'm saying he is more and more desperate is just because how sad it is what he actually steals from these crime scenes here he stole her wedding band and her engagement ring if that isn't the saddest steal ever I just don't know what is it's just as if it's not triggering enough that he is targeting elderly people he's stealing the only like emotional connection that they have to like the husband that has passed away it's just so grim and 
this connection is only going to be made by me on this channel, okay? So, do not quote me this. This is not anything I have read in any sources. Personal opinion, for entertainment purposes only. Cool. Why I think he's murdering all of these women in this violent way with this exposure of, like, their breasts or their genitals is because I think he is killing his mom in his head. I couldn't find anything, like, were they in touch in any way, shape or form? Like, could he reach to his mom to enact this? And again, as I told you, this isn't something, like, he confessed to. This is just pure speculation, knowing what happened in his childhood, where his mother used to expose him and humiliate him. So I think, like, in his head, he's replicating that and projecting that on these elderly women. Again, don't quote me on this. This is just my thoughts, okay? Four weeks after murder of Dorothy Langs, so January 1981, the police patrol just notices this car speeding manically on the highway, so they're obviously trying to flag him, to tail him, and to then, like, stop him, to give him the ticket. But this car doesn't seem to be stopping. He is going into a speed chase with the police, and then the car driver proceeds to propel himself outside of the car and then run on foot while his car is speeding the opposite direction. So, of course, the police, like, can't get off the highway, so they go and, like, stop the car that has crashed, and they look inside the car for any clues into who this man might be. And what they know, they find, like, his ticket for a repair on the car that is addressed to David Mason. And this ticket repair had his family address, so they go to give the family a visit, and they find his mother and his brother living at that house. So they speak with them, and his brother says, okay, he gave me, like, this weird tape that probably will be of interest to you, because it kind of seemed like a goodbye gift, like, you know, he wanted it to be heard. And the tape is called David E. Mason Epitaph. And obviously the police is there being like, do you have a record play? Like, should we play it in front of everybody? And they do. This epitaph was sort of like a confession to all of the murders and the robberies that he has committed. On the tape, he would allude that he is guessing it might be of interest to the police. He also referred to the Oakland Tribune article about unsolved murders and stated that he could clarify some of their mysterious haps. So, 10 days later, on February the 4th, 1981, they finally managed to locate him. I don't have many more details on this, otherwise, trust me, I would have told you all of them. I don't know how it took them 10 days, but hey, he was finally in custody, and there weren't apparently other victims during those 10 days, thank God. So, once his Miranda rights were read, he, again, repeated everything from the epitaph. He confessed to all four murders and other robberies as well. And the police asked him, again, because this is different times, it's 81, we're just out of the 70s. The police asked him, would you walk us to the scenes of the crime? And he's like, yes, of course. He could have probably just told them the addresses, but again, different times. So he just walks all of these police investigators to the scenes of all four murders. 
So I'm going to try to simplify this next part the way I understand it, okay? Because the only account of events that details it is this like court document where I took a lot of information from. But this part I really struggle to understand it, so I hope that this is like 100% correct, okay? And it's also written in like really complicated court language, so I hope I do it justice. But basically what happens is that David Mason is going to get a cellmate. So he was held waiting trial, now it's 1982, so it's been over a year he's been held in this Alameda jail. And on that particular day he gets like a new cellmate and apparently at the block that they were all staying it was called the F-Tank and it's famous for sometimes having like police informants, you know, just being like thrown into the cell block and then getting information on each other and then, you know, that person just ends up being released and then telling everybody about the murders or the crimes that one of those cellmates has committed. So on one such day, Boyd Johnson has been thrown into this F-Tank and he was not the informant, he was the criminal. So this guy apparently raped a girl and then has been paraded on TV, you know, people were obviously like fascinated by it, they wanted his interview because that's how we are with crime. They were tailing him to like the place where the crime has happened and Boyd kind of during this like emotional confession on television has also said, oh yeah, there were others, you know, like I wasn't the only one involved in this rape. So this guy, Boyd Johnson, lands in the cell where David Mason is. So obviously he is coming in, being paraded as the celebrity. But also it was said that David Mason knew the victim, knew the rape victim in this case. So he was just not on with any of this. So apparently there was a police informant in this block as well, trying to obtain information. But certain people just, you know, try during the day, then I don't know what happened with that informant. And everybody's story kind of changes because obviously nobody wants to get involved with this part. And that part is that David Mason jumped during the night on Boyd Johnson, strangled him, and then carried him all the way to the male bathrooms where he made it seem as if this was a suicide. But probably because this was more violent than them just strangling the guy. Once they put him into the male showers and try to reenact this suicide scene, Johnson started bleeding and he obviously bled onto the defendant, onto David Mason and another guy that was aiding him, assisting him in this. And then there was blood on their clothes that they tried to dispose but this was found later, which just implicated him in a fifth murder. And that trial, despite, bear in mind, this guy left a freaking epitaph, he also confessed to the police, to their face, probably on like the tape recording as well. So it's like two tape recordings of his confessions at trial. That's why this is when in this research I was just like, mate, why are they getting this? Why are we here? Why are we here? Because he decided he was going to turn into an alibi man. And he just provided alibis for all these murders. And he said he's not guilty on any of them. Hmm. 
yeah for Jennings because if you remember that's the brutal one the guy that apparently sexually assaulted him when he was a teenager he said he was actually working at like this thrift shop at that time and with his card you know one of those punch cards where you used to like punch in for a shift and then like punch out once you end your shift yeah he said like you know the timestamps confirmed that he was there but then his brother and like another friend of his who basically worked at the place said like he could kind of manipulate this somebody else could have punched in for him so that alibi went to shits for the third victim he lied that he was in a completely different part of the state so he was just like miles and miles away and this one he almost got away with because of like a wrong testimony where the neighbor actually said that they were helping out this victim on the day that they weren't, like they mixed up the dates, which meant that Mason almost kind of got away with this alibi, but once this neighbor actually remembered, no, 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 it was on this day that we have found his body, like a few days after, then people realized, okay, this alibi just doesn't make any sense now because your dates don't match. Now at court, obviously, everybody's like, okay, what about the last one? Did that just happened we know it we have witnessed it with like his blood is on your clothes but how are you going to justify that because you were definitely in that prison cell at that time he said yes of course of course no that's the only kill now but he felt provoked because he knew Johnson and he knew the rape victim and Johnson was bragging to everybody in the cell about this rape and this was morally incorrect so he had to intervene so finally, on January 27th, 1984, the jury brought the guilty verdict and he was sentenced to die. He was actually to die in the guest chamber, which was the death penalty in San Quentin at the time. But the part that I find weird, and again, one of the last meals, I can't remember which one, but there is actually probably plenty where... People just want to get it over with and usually that is one surprising fact that I have found since researching last meals that people don't want their defense attorneys to appeal like David Mason was one of those people he actually would snap multiple times at his defense attorneys for like wasting taxpayers money and appealing his case I'm like okay sir like your moral compass is definitely wrong to be reproaching to anybody for anything but I mean I get it also something that I wasn't thinking about as much until listening to like a recent different true crime case on a different podcast was that the death row inmates get a better life? I mean, how do I word it? But they get it better, basically, on a death row instead of being in general pop, like in general population. And that is, unfortunately, because others, like the prison wardens and everybody working there, know that they're going to die, which I just find so weird because usually they're the worst of the worst. Like, I understand that they're going to die, but again, until they have execution date, what? If somebody was to just chill on death row for like a decade or multiple decades and what they're treated better than like somebody in general population that might be there for, I don't know, like weed possession. I just don't get the logic, okay? It's like you can tell me all for this, but I just don't get the logic between the two. David was one such prisoner. He spent nine years on a death row and during that time he finally accepted responsibility. 
for his crimes. He actually sat down for a 90-minute prison interview and he told the reporters, I believe in the death penalty, I believe in the most serious penalty for the most serious crime. And again, he asked his defense attorneys to drop any other appeals and just to set the execution date. And he even said he is willing to switch from a gas chamber to lethal injection if that is just to speed up the process, alleviate everybody else, and he's going to take full responsibility. He will even resort to that if necessary to keep the court from delaying his execution. And in that 90-minute interview, he also said what we kind of know is the truth, like, and what I tried to align during this case, is that he knew of nothing else. Like, the fact that he looked lost through these crimes and he just looked like he was, you know, trying to commit a robbery, trying to commit a murder, what he was doing with his victims, it just looked like all over the place. It didn't really look like, you know, he was a mastermind who had some thought involved. He said that was because he was unloved and abused as a child, so he just was brought up and was lost. Like, he didn't know what his purpose in life was. And he also said he firmly believed he would not even be in prison. Not because he didn't believe, like, he would turn into a criminal, but he thought he was to die a lot younger and in some form of a shootout with the police. And he again said, not blaming everybody, but kind of sounds like he is, that had he understood the pain that he was causing the victim's families in his early age, that that would have been a deterrent for him. Like, if somebody was to teach him empathy when he was younger, then that would be a deterrent for him to stop him from committing any further crimes. And on his final day, his friends and family came to visit. He had apparently unlimited phone calls with his family, which apparently is what happened at San Quentin at the time. He refused to have a special meal. And as we know, this is what he had. An almost finished glass of water, yes, with, with some ice. He made it cold. He made it ice cold like his soul. He said he had no final words. So, on August 24th, 1993, again, early in the morning, like with most of these cases, at around 12.05 a.m., they just escorted him to the guest chamber. And even then, because this was kind of considered strange that basically he had, you know, no appeal, so there was nothing to go through, no, like, last-minute seizes to the death penalty or anything like that. His attorney was in the witness area and this warden kind of pointed him to his attorney and asked him, did you change your mind? Do you want to, like, appeal or try to appeal one last time? To which David said, no, warden, I want to proceed. Thanks, warden. So, at 12.09 a.m., they have introduced the guest into the guest chamber and he was pronounced dead at 12.23. Which is a lot of time, if you ask me. It's, what, 13, 14 minutes? Did it take him 14 minutes? Like, that sounds brutal. I mean, that just reminds you of Auschwitz and I just don't know. Like, I, I'm so flabbergasted. Certain states still, to this day, like, commit death penalty through little gas injections, and I'm just like, I don't understand. That just sounds like ancient method of torture. It just sounds like World War II to me, but sure, you know best, I guess. So he's dead. And his death marked the second execution in California since 1967, and apparently the last execution by death chamber in that state. And that's the case of David Edwin Mason. What do you think about him? Do you love that he was a serial killer? 
just so pointless, so pointless. If this guy only had direction or just found direction, again, it's all on him. There are plenty of people that come from abused homes, abused childhoods, that to try at least to figure out how to live a better life, try to differentiate between the right and wrong. David apparently just didn't want to do that. And also, I'm sorry, but like, why are you going after the elderly and the elderly that also tried to help you out when you most needed it? Like, literally gave you jobs. Try to like help you out, go on the right path. Just, no. So here I really think like, yes, he was motivated to a certain degree by desperation, by money, but he could have also asked them. Like, I genuinely believe like, those people would have either allowed him to like, stay there or would have given him food or anything. He could have gone about it a completely different way, but he didn't. And because of that, what a bummer. Let me know in the comments what do you think motivated him. Do you see the correlation that I saw between like the female victims and his mother? Do you think it was just purely desperation and just monetary gain, even as small as it was? What do you think was going on through his head? Because, yeah, this case I just find truly interesting because I think, like, every victim was, like, a story for itself. There was that guy that, like, sexually assaulted him as he was a teenager. Then there were, like, females. Then there was that first elderly woman. Then there was Ice Peak. Then there was Ranch. Different, you know, modus operandi. And, like, mate, don't do any of it. Just make up your freaking mind. No, don't do any of it. That is a tip for all of you. And also drop down in the comments what else do you want me to eat and cover. I have an next case in mind, so that's coming at you probably next week. And that's an interesting one. When I heard like what she ate for her last meal, I was like, hey girl, we got to go to a female case again. We just have to. It just has to happen. But until then, drop down in the comments what you want me to eat next, who do you want me to cover next. And uh, I'll see you next Friday. In the meantime, between now and next Friday, <laughs> you chose your next meal as if it was your last. Yeah. Mm hmm? You do that. <laughs> don't just choose a glass of water, like, don't be basic. Judgmental. So judgy. So judgy. Pose for me like you're choosing your last meal. Wow, you look amazing. Epic. Epic. Okay, have you lost it yet? Have you completely lost it?